Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Welcome back to Reality Check Radio with Don and Jaspreet. Um, we welcome your feedback. Uh, text 2057 or inbox at realitycheck.radio. And uh, today we're going to welcome in a very um, good speaker. I have to say, I was going to say hilarious speaker. He is a very funny chap if you let him loose, but we'll get him on serious stuff today. Uh, Dr. Calvin Duncan. Dr. Calvin Duncan has done so much, it's hard to give him give it justice. Um, so I'm going to just say, I think he's an Olympian in academia, sciences, business. He's an author. There's not much he hasn't done uh, after his university days. But let's ask Kelly. Uh, how he began his uh, life uh, way back in Dunedin and take it from there. Welcome. Um, I, we have got the uh, uh, the okay to call him Kelly, but Dr. Calvin Duncan, Kelly, welcome. Thank you. And you exaggerate everything, of course, Don. Um, I'm actually quite a humble person and, I, and nobody thinks my jokes are very funny. Well, I'm I'm happy to have them. I mean, my jokes aren't funny either, but we try hard, don't we? We do try hard. <laughs> yeah. So, so we've just heard that you uh, off here that you uh, were brought up in Dunedin, and uh, a bit of a bit of a comment about the Caledonian ground and how Kelly came about. Yes. Yes. That's. Uh, do you want me to repeat that? Well, I think you can. Well, um, my mother, of course, I knew I was always in trouble when I was a child because. My mother and my aunts would call me Kelvin rather than my nickname Kelly. The way I got the Kelly nickname, my brother, my older brother, said it was because I was so naughty that I resembled an Australian person of the same nickname, same name, Ned Kelly. But in actual fact, it was when I was a toddler, I was taken to the Caledonian ground in Dunedin and to see all the sports and goings on. And I was enthralled by this. So for the days afterwards, I kept on trying to convince my parents to take me back to the Caledonian ground. And I ran around the house saying, Kelly, 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 because I couldn't say Caledonian in those days. And I'm getting to the age now where I probably won't be able to say Caledonian now, but uh, I still manage. Anyway, so, so Kelly came about. So what the resemblance to Ned Kelly? <laughs> well, you don't, you haven't got the armory on. Uh, we, we've taken it off for today. Um, Taking my bucket off, yes. Yeah, yeah. So at the Caledonian ground, remind me about that. That Was that a rugby ground or a soccer ground? Well, it was um, cycling was the big thing, I think, but they also had soccer. But occasionally they would have a big fair there that was absolutely marvellous. Um, Chinese lanterns and marquees, all the things that would uh, uh, would inspire a kid brought up during the war when things were pretty grim and no cars, no men. Only The only men that I remember were cripples from the First World War. It was a terrible existence and we went nowhere because you, it, it, the posters were, is your voyage, is your journey strictly necessary? And yeah. of course, a two and three and four-year-old didn't have strictly necessary journeys except local ones. So we, we never went anywhere. No holidays, nothing. Horses, of course, there were lots of horses. And I thought this was quite normal. So when um, the, the war eased up 
and my father came back in 1943, um, we, we started having much more fun in our lives than playing in the air raid shelters that were on the Oval. We, we weren't ever air raided, so they made very good children's playgrounds rather than... Uh, Fantastic. Isn't it interesting? Jasper and I, uh, and other parts of our shows, talk about uh, the the smart cities uh, concepts and how restrictive they're going to be. Uh, you may not. We, we won't talk about that perhaps today. But um, you you were liberated, and here we are in the modern era trying to restrict our movements. So uh, that's the new concept. Uh, let's not talk about that just so early in the program. Well, just a comment. I, I was at a chogam and Indian. Um, town planners were trying to make their city more livable by having essential services with an easy walking distance of the residents. So it was a dispersed city that uh, would be much more pleasant than the immense crowding into the central CBD. Uh, I don't know how they've done this, how they got on with it, but it sounded a good plan to me. Well, uh, we see, I just said we're not going to talk about it. Perhaps we should continue on that vein for a moment. <laughs> Um, it seems that the opposite is uh, is the intent today. It is all about control rather than happiness. Uh, maybe, uh, Jasper, you've got a comment. Uh, do you recall your days in, in India, how it was played out? Oh, Don, the best lays laid plans of mice and men. What the intentions are and what the outcomes happen to be often, you know, are a complete, complete world apart. And I have no doubt many of these people have the best of intentions, but we've seen the repercussions in some places. We see London, especially, and parts of uh, other parts of the UK speak out uh, against the, they call them, I think, the ULEZ, the ultra low emission zones or something. And they seem to have a whole lot of different terms, but it all ends, ends up coming back to the same. But that does bring us to what you and I have often been talking about, emissions and how they seem to, regardless of what I am buying, literally, I could be buying a jacket for my kids from somewhere and there is something about low emissions and circular economy, or I could be buying food or meat especially, and there is carbon miles. Can't seem to get away from the fact. And Kelly, you, you I know you've trained as a biologist, Yes. But life somehow, and I go through your body of work, you have a PhD in biology, but you have helped establish the resource management courses in the University of Canterbury, Lincoln, served on its joint board of management for some years. Has it always been like this or are we, or well, is something really? Yes, um, I went with the flow to a large extent, but looking back, tertiary education has been somewhat corrupted by the emergence of studies courses. <laughs> like studies in Antarctica. It's once over lightly of everything that goes on in Antarctica. Mm. Um, there's no in-depth that you get with subject studies. Geologists are no longer geologists. They are earth scientists and environmentalists. And I maintain that this is the wrong approach because things are complicated. It takes an awful lot of study to conquer a subject. And yet we are now doing this once over lightly stuff which is exacerbated by the um, ability of people to get quick summaries that are just superficial and once over lightly. And it's even worse, we can now get them to write uh, very convincing essays, which they've had no input at all to with um, chat, GTP and so on. So 
there's that. But I was going to make the, I think, important point. Oh, you want a question? Yes, sorry. No, 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 you go. I'm just... Oh, the important point that fundamentally there are two kinds of societies. There's one where the powerful make the rules and people obey the, the powerful. They submit to the powerful. China is a beautiful example of that. Endure. And Confucianism started that many millennia ago, and it still prevails today. Other societies are where the people make the rules and they answer to the laws, not necessarily to the powerful. Two completely contrasting um, situations. And I think the world is drifting back into the autocracy of submitting to the will of the powerful who make the laws. And in New Zealand, you can see that creeping in more and more. Subtle little ways, like we're given far too little time and opportunity to comment on essential bills that have been proposed. This is a denial of democracy. It's actually a switch in the total tenor of humankind to the autocratic submission system of governance. That's what we're facing. And every, that sort of contextualizes everything that probably I'll be saying. How's that? Well, that's fantastic. I mean, it's it's our experience as well. And um, last week I had a comment that I meant, mentioned about the word submission. It is to basically capitulate, give in. And yet that's the language you've got to submit to policy. Well, I would have thought you need to object or have input or, as you put it, um, make comment. Um, but submitting is the wrong thing to do at the base. That's a, It's a dumb word. And secondly, the point I make just uh, in, in addition to your comments is that the language that these people who aren't doing the sciences justice, as you perhaps have just if I can paraphrase it, you have just said, uh, they use language that you can sh surely um, deduce that they don't know enough about their subject, but they get away with writing stuff. And this agenda seemed to develop in my adult life, perhaps through uh, the universities when, say, Kelly, about 1990 onwards? Yes. About the, R the, times the, the, the time the RMA was enacted? Yes, yes, yes. Well, the RMA tried to do too much. Um, far too much. It also did something which was quite dangerous. We were warned by the legal scholars of the time that enacting the RMA would negate all of the decisions made, court-tested decisions made under the old Town and Country Planning Act. And you don't throw out all those decisions in common law without taking a huge risk. And that's what we did. Now we're trying to scramble back, and we're going to make the same mistake again. Well, my understanding of it was uh, the precautionary principle was front and centre of the RMA, so pretty much let's stop as much as you can because it's damaging or deleterious to the uh, to the to the environment. Um, and of course, you're right. Uh, Modernising anything after years and years of um, objections and input and 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 therefore output through the regulatory process can be turned on its head and it just gives a uh it just gives um, ice cream to the, and 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 lollies to the lawyers and and professionals 
changing those rules. I mean, it, it opens the can of worms is what I'm trying to say. Is that how you assess it? You're right. You're absolutely right. When I first came across the precautionary principle, it was a group of activists who came to see me when I was dean. Um, and they explained the precautionary principle to me. And I said, well, that means you don't trust science. You don't trust rationalism. You don't trust criticism. You don't trust those things. You just automatically take a negative stance to any progress because you can always find bad things about almost everything we do. That's why we are controlled by ourselves, our values, and the law. It's to try to minimize the bad that we can do. But we must progress. We must make progress. And we cannot put impediments to progress. So that's my answer to the precautionary principle. And, you know, now in the, in the council, I often see it. More recently, this week, we were talking uh, about things out here in Southland District. There were bridges being closed. So we had one set of reports from the council engineers that, you know, these ones need to be closed ASAP, can't work, absolutely dangerous. And then we had a group of uh, just over a dozen people from that community come along, quite a few farmers. And this uh, one farmer, and it's in the public domain, so I have no qualms talking about it. He took every picture that the council engineers had put up and he pointed out the issues in that, that this point, you've only looked at this side, this particular beam that looks like this is actually just moss. This beam that you say is weakened, I pulled my screwdriver through it, it didn't. It's almost like we don't trust mankind. We don't trust that evolution of ideas is how we have progressed over millennia. And now suddenly, you know, everything needs to be legislated because without that, there is nothing. We, they almost need to save us from ourselves. Yes, yes, I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, the other thing that happens is people in decision-making positions of power are swamped by detail. Uh, Muldoon had the right rule that give it to me on one side of an A4 page, everything. If he wanted more information, he'd ask for it. Yep. But your big ideas should be able to be put onto one side of an A4 page. If you give them 400 pages to read, they'll just be so confused. And the, the decisions will have to be, well, they're much delayed until people that actually can try and get on top of this wealth of information, most of it irrelevant. And you make decisions which are probably not in the interest of the people. And that's what Dodd often says, simplicity. And where is the simplicity? I am currently trying to wade through the IPCC 6 report. It's 2,400 pages. Right. And God Almighty, everything, they first put up something like, you know, this is what's going to happen to our coastlines. But till 2050, we have low confidence. After that, we have high confidence. It's like, come on, make some sense here. I understand English. And if it you know, well over 2,000 pages to explain to me how dire a state humanity is in. There's something not right here. Well, they don't actually, uh, they brought back man's hockey stick again, which yes, has been yes. disproved both scientifically and in law and in, in court cases. Climate changes all the time. In the medieval warm period, the Chinese were able to grow citrus fruits far and further north than they do today. And the British were growing grapes right up to the Scottish border. 
Um, so it was warm. It was warmer than it is today. Yet on man's hockey stick, it looks flat, that the temperature was consistent. They attribute all of this change to carbon dioxide. So as you probably know, Don, I did some a different approach to the IPCC and the climatologists. I use mathematics to analyze the actual data, even though I suspect that the data had not been presented quite honestly enough for my purposes, but I just accepted it anyway. And I was able to show that almost universally, the um, rate of heating, rate of warming, declined. That's the rate, declined after 1985. It will peak in 2050, and the increase in temperature until then is minor, quite minor. Tides, uh, I mean sea level, will increase probably until 2090, but they will diminish in intensity and in height and rate until that time. So the threat of um, increasing a height of seawater on, on the seas is greatly exaggerated by the IPCC. Anyway, the next thing I, I did was to um, test the correlation between carbon dioxide and the rate of temperature and the temperature increases. This is central to their argument. They've got two arguments, one based on models, which is absolutely nonsense, and the second one, the correlation between the rise in CO2 and the rise in temperature. Well, since 1985, in most records, official records, the correlation is either weak or non-existent. The temperature has, uh, in the last five to seven years, stabilized, yet carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere are still going up. So carbon dioxide can't be the driver, or if it is, it's only a minor driver. There are others, I won't go into them, drivers, but it's much more complicated than the IPCC. And I, frankly, they're wrong. But how do we convince them? My well, arguments are simply not listened to. There are thousands of good scientists saying exactly what I say, but they're not listened to. They're not part of the chorus that are singing doom and gloom. So, in fact, the, the, the people you're just talking about aren't part of the 97% consensus tribe. No. They're the opposite to that. And yeah. actually, probably 55% of scientists who take an interest in this area express the same views as I do. There has been temperature rises. The, temp the climate, after all, the climate changes all the time. But um, whether CO2 is a driver has never been proved. In fact, if you look at the record, CO2 rises follow temperature rises. So how can a follower be a driver? It's like the guard at the back of the train is actually driving the train at the engine. Doesn't happen. What more can yes. I say? <laughs> so yeah, so look, I should say, listeners, um, we, we've transitioned into talking about um, global warming and climate change far quicker than I intended. We didn't hear about Kelly's background. He's clearly proud of his background in early days, but we'll get on to, on to what he also does. He writes books. And one he's written is recently is a counterblast to man-made global warming uh, hypothesis, and it's available at Trosh, Tross Publishing. Um, tell me, why is the word blast spelt with an E? Okay. Well, uh, King James wrote 
uh, a blast, as it was spelled at the time, B-L-A-S-T-E, a counterblast to tobacco. And he was ignored. He warned about the dangers of smoking way back there in the 17th century, early 17th century. And he was ignored. So here was a really well-reasoned argument, totally ignored by everybody. Smoking became common. Doctors recommended smoking to their uh, patients. Army chiefs gave smokes to their troops. And then we got the Surgeon General's report. And that, all of a sudden, you realised that smoking was actually dangerous to health and it could kill you. And so here was an example of a well-supported thing, smoking, being supported by all the authorities. The only dissent was really early on, and it was sound. Um, it was a counterblast. So what I'm saying now is we need a counterblast to the global warming myths. And I, so I deliberately spelt it the way that he spelt it in the old English or the Middle English way with an E. Perfect. And that, that's uh, satisfying me. That's good enough for me. But um, why, um, why have you waited 30 years after I needed this uh, book to, uh, to write it? You should have been far, far quicker in getting out of the blocks. I'm slow. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, hey, so we will go back to the book and the content of it and and your reasons for writing it have now become apparent. Uh, you're definitely concerned that the uh, information that's coming out uh, is, is inaccurate and yet New Zealand legislators and politicians and uh, acad- many academia in academia have bought into the, into the what you would consider the misinformation, perhaps, campaign of the IPCC and others? Yes, well, many are forced into it. We've seen a recent episode when someone was forced to withdraw and was highly criticised for being critical. Now, that's quite wrong. People should be able to express themselves freely. If they're doing no harm, physical harm to people, we should be able to express our opinions. But uh, the leader of the party, the National Party, came down hard on uh, the people. I think there was more than one. And uh, so we see suppression of free speech. Well, that's my concern. We've got 120 MPs in the parliament. Maureen Pugh put up her case for for a one-line sentence and the media crucified her. Uh, And and so have the listener attempt to, to crucify her. The thing is, she is the genuine MP that most New Zealanders, are, I think, are looking for. Someone who is willing to critically ask or ask critical questions. For instance, as I understand it, uh, the, the man hockey stick was fallacious. It, they took out the medieval warm period to create that, um, that uh, fear factor of a hockey stick uh, and the rapid rising. Uh, secondly, I gather that there's no models that have you know the thousands of models of this consensus has done have ever been validated. They're all all wrong, every one of them. The and, and yet we're and yet we're putting all our policy net zero twenty fifty, uh, trying to diminish the effect of the non effect of methane from our animals uh, uh, at great cost. All this stuff. What? Why is it that politicians are so gullible and not willing to be 
asking the critical questions. I mean, even David Seymour said, we will follow uh, what others do. Basically, we don't want to be leaders. We'll follow and we'll make sure we do no more than our trading partners. Now, that, that's the smartest oh. comment of all, but it's it's still not right. It's still a cop-out. Still a yeah, cop-out. There have been plenty of examples of false philosophies ruling people. Um, eugenics, uh, racial superiority, uh, lots and lots of apparently scientific studies uh, being used to justify horrific uh, programs and policy. Eugenics was one of the worst, I think. And so so the nub of all that, um, Kelly, where the Dickens is it all coming from? Where's this? Power seekers. The people who want to rule us. The people who want us to be like the Chinese and submit. Um, and it's a, I think it's a quest for naked power that they get together as a group and, and chase this um, idea because they can get control by doing so. So, as I understand it, 70 years post-World War II, it doesn't take long for the brainwashing and the crony capitalism to sort of influence everything in terms of the policy settings if you are lazy and asleep at the wheel. Do you think we've been, well, I think we've been lazy and asleep at the wheel, but on the other side of it, um, in terms of your profession, so many people are getting their funding out of the same sort of regime. So, and how, do we, mm. <laughs> how do we? How do we? Uh, how do we? Uh, what's the circuit breaker? What's the circuit breaker here? Well, reality eventually will out. That's the big circuit breaker. Um, I. I don't know of any other. The uh, the interesting circuit breaker with the idea of slavery, which almost every uh, everybody believed in, was the fact that when they didn't employ slaves, they got higher productivity. Right? Why would you work hard for um, the master? with rotten living conditions, badly treated, bad food. Someone has speculated, I've forgotten who it was, how many times the masters in Rome, how many um, wine, how much wine was polluted by piddle from the slaves, <laughs> getting back somehow or another. And to everybody's surprise, when you gave up slavery and, and employed people as, as share milkers, share croppers or whatever, Productivity shot through the roof because they're working for their family's benefit, the previous slave. Um, the yeoman farmer system is a very good system indeed, the family farm that employs people rather than enslaves people. So reality, the reality that the new system, the non-slavery system, was far more efficient, did stop slavery to a great extent. So reality will eventually. If if we if our global warming just stays as it is at the moment, or even starts going down, 
the reality will come and everybody who said that we're heading to disaster will look a bit of a fool. They'll probably be dead by then, so they won't mind. But uh, it will be put down as yet another episode of a falsehood getting believed by far too many people. Yeah, that intriguing to me is that these people don't have a conscience. The people pushing this agenda don't have a conscience. They don't go red faced. They don't feel uh, that they're um, if they even if they're wrong, they won't say they're wrong. Uh, it, it's no different to perhaps the recent years we've had the big COVID um, fiasco, as I call it, yeah. uh, and no one's saying they got it wrong. Uh, in fact, there's a lot of people willing to say they got it right and there's nothing to see here now, just move on. Um, some of us won't let that happen. Uh, yeah, that's a slightly different thing, but uh, in, in effect, it's the same sort of mind, mind management that uh, the regulator and the politicians are trying to do to their citizens. So we're getting the reality check and and getting people to have the gumption to say we're sorry will be a big deal. Do you think it'll ever happen? No, no. The, the COVID example is a very good one because it's so recent. And, and you realise, of course, that the government broke the law with the imposition that they did, uh, which should never have happened. But, I mean, people who climb the slippery pole to get to the top know the things that you've got to do to stay up there. The pole is very slippery. And so... That's where it comes from. They're far more interested in climbing the slippery pole than they are in doing good for the average person. Uh, in fact, the people who do good for the average person tend to be looked at rather, you know, dismissively. Skeptically even. Skeptically even. I mean, and, and well, we're everybody should be skeptical. I mean, we learn com comprehension as primary school children, that was to try and arm us to be able to really examine critically arguments and proposals. It was a very valuable skill. Many kids found that very hard. I used to enjoy it because I enjoy pulling the arguments to pieces, and I've done that ever since. But I don't think they teach it now, do they? They don't teach a, a critical analysis and comprehension at all. You've got to accept it. I mean, I, I don't think, think the history is probably the one that's been most hard hit in the in the uh, social science in the liberal arts. But science is under attack from a really, I don't know, I, I don't know quite what, what how to put my foot on it, but it's a directed approach to try and get everybody to be um, productive, ignoring the fact that most of the great leaps forward have come either by accident or by rather unusual um, individuals doing their own thing. You know, um, nowadays, uh, Faraday would never have got any grants for waving a magnet around an electric wire. Crazy. Would never, never, ever. Did. Yet that was the origin of AC power, right? It transformed the world. Well, we, and I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. What are we teaching these days? We've seen so many uh, people in, in academia, even even within academia, now talking about the fact that which way are New Zealand educational standards going? 
it almost seems to me that we've got as long as we have uh, i think there's three key things climate hysteria critical race theory and gender ideology ticked off new zealand schools seem to think that's a well rounded education and self directed learning there are how on earth can a kid direct his or her own learning i mean come on <laughs> It's like I, I saw on tell on YouTube about a person, a couple who were allowing their own child to determine its sexual its gender, its gender. Yeah. Now I've got bad news for that kid. Every cell of his body is either XX or XY. If it's XY, she's a female. If it's XX, he's a male. And there's nothing you can do about it. You can dress up as a woman if you like, but you're the XX is still there. So uh Adam Smith made the point in his first book which I always refer to because nobody knows about it but he was a moral philosopher as well as an economist and he was a very good moral philosopher he said that values have to be taught right the things that will guide us to a good life a productive life and a successful life amongst our fellow people and allow what he later Uh, postulated was a free market um privately owning democracy that was only possible if we taught the right values to our kids we can't let them decide for themselves and and you know i make that comment a, a lot to people that the private property right is the most sacrosanct thing and yet we're trying our level best to destroy it we're trying to tell society that what you have can be theirs um without any purchase you just take uh hence we have rising crime we have disrespect for the property of others uh, i've had it in my own property twice in the last 12 months uh after 66 years of not having any um disrespect for our property we've had a couple of invasions so it it is a it is a whole breaking down of the institutions that we value uh, in terms of our uh that uh, values uh and and we're letting it happen right in front of our nose Kelly I mean we've this interview is wide ranging we've we started on climate we're moving to this we'll probably move back to climate and um, it's great that it's free ranging but we are in a bit of a we're in a bit of a bugger's muddle um aren't we at the moment you will under the covid regulations they own our noses not under our noses it's <laughs> in us they're invading us by law and by force um well yes i think that um again i go back to the idea that uh this idea of freedom is quite quite misunderstood by the modern generation i was in a um one of those sessions that they have for naughty kids i used to be you know help out in, in social things and a child had stolen from an elderly couple and there was this meeting organized by social welfare as it was at the time with since the child was of a certain race there was a social worker present of a certain race and that social worker said that if you're hungry it is entirely proper that you take things to satisfy your hunger and i told him well you're preaching the downfall of civilization there which he didn't like but that is the attitude 
in the social sciences to a great extent that was permeating our country. The young are being told that the end justifies the means, that if you're hungry, you're free to invade somebody else's private property and take it. So it's a, it's a cancer which is present and which is spreading in our society. Your, your idea of the private property right is fundamental to a modern democracy. We must have private property rights. So if you look at uh, Antonio Gramsci's comment about the long march through the institutions, I think that was around 1920s in that, in that era, you'd say 100 years on, the Marxists have won for the moment. The Marxists have always won, right from Rousseau. Now, Rousseau was um, despised and defeated by every thinking, every principle thinking person at the time. His works should have been ignored and forgotten, but they permeate our education system. The idea that the state of nature, people in the state of nature were perfect, with no relationship to anybody else, they were perfect. Civilization, the association into groups, was a, a downfall. It was sort of Garden of Eden stuff. And of course, that's an absolute nonsense. A person who is alone in the wild will die pretty quickly. Um, but Rousseau said, no, it's, civilization's been a real downfall for humankind. And the idea that people are little flowers and should be left to themselves to develop into beautiful flowering bushes is nonsense, absolute nonsense, but it permeates educational philosophy. The, the far better description is one given by a famous, not so famous person, that every year we are invaded by barbarians. The barbarians are our children. And they have to learn how to be, to, to be civilized. We have to teach them how to be civilized. Which goes back to Adam Smith again, exactly what he said. Now, we're not doing that. At one school, I used to be very heavily involved in education, and one school I was chairman of, uh, emerging schools, the education department came out and tried to evoke from us agreement to the values, as they called them, that they were proposing. Now, I didn't say anything because it wasn't my place as a chairman to say anything, but value should come from the community. It should come from the family. It's not for a school to impose values. A school can have rules, and that's fine, but they should not impose values. How's that? That's not bad, Kelly. Uh, in fact, a couple of weeks ago, we had Tom DeWeese talk about the need for the community to basically take back control of, of their community and the need to set up what he called freedom pods. Now, I think there's a lot in that and what you have said. Uh, it is about uh, the community to take back ownership. Uh, from the central planners, and hopefully, hopefully, that's going to the renaissance is underway. Hopefully, well, there's, there's a, a general belief that capitalism is about greed. Now, that's that's wrong. Capitalism is about taking personal responsibility. But personal responsibility means not only your selfish self, but it means looking after your family, your community, your town, your country, the world. In other words, the focus of power should be the individual, 
Now we're trans transmitting the idea that the focus of power is the elite, the government, especially the bureaucrats who carefully protect themselves by A, being massively common, there are a lot of them, and B, they use contractors to protect their backs. If anything goes wrong, they can blame the contractors. And private enterprise is always useless, isn't it? It makes all these errors. You know, they're, they're in private enterprise. So the bureaucrats are protected from any reprisal, any uh, idea that we can control them. And they're probably a worse force for this evil we're talking about than the parliament itself. Because parliament is served by the bureaucrats, and the bureaucrats really have control and are protected. So that's a radical idea, isn't it? That's a radical. That's a radical idea. All right, I've I said in jest a few weeks ago we should just build build a wall, Donald, uh, around about across the uh, Hutt Valley, across to the other side, and that'll do, and uh, we might all be happy. But on the other side of it, I I understand enough about commerce to sort of say that all these people who do get paid out of your taxes do demand, they do consume, they do speculate. And so they do add to an economy. Uh, but well, is the, eco is the economy... The economy is only added to uh, the productivity gains. Ah, I was going to say, but <laughs> oh, they, ne they never replace anything that they consume, do they? No, that's right. Nor do they... Their, their work is focused on what they do, which is paper shuffling. They don't get out there and dig ditches. They don't get out there and milk cows. They don't get out there and make ball bearings or whatever. In other words, they're not in an area where productivity can be demonstrated and improved because you can get better farming. You can get better ball bearing systems. You can get better ditch, ditch diggings. All of these things add to wealth and they're not adding to wealth. They are part of the economy for sure, but they're not the wealth generating part of the economy. The wealth generating part of the economy, unfortunately, is private enterprise. Period. Now, Period. Yeah. Yes, both of you have spoken about private enterprise and uh, protecting the right to private property. Earlier this week, I think, yeah, Monday or Tuesday, there was this online Zoom I attended. And yeah, I know I must have rocks in my head, but this was hosted by Greenpeace. It was called Our Methane Moment. So there were four speakers a couple more facilitators. And uh, I think Don told me there was just a dozen people. So one of those was yours truly. And I was caught by this line, this uh, gentleman was there and he runs this organization called All, Aotearoa Liberation League. And uh, I'm probably massacring what he said, but he went something on the lines of that we need to humble ourselves we need to get rid of this idea that all of us can be millionaires or have exclusive access to vast parcels of land. We need to get rid of this idea of individualism and defer to the community. I was blown away. This was a young man. He could be no more than 30, I'd say. And the way he said it, he, he truly believed in it. But this is what our youth think today. Well, the trouble is that sort of idea is romantically attractive, superficially attractive. It's Rousseau, it's Marx, both of whom were desperately wrong because we're not like that. As E.O. Wilson said, communism is a beautiful idea, 
and it's only for the for the other species. It's not for humans. We're not like that. <laughs> but this this is what you know. Speaking in a theological, sorry. This is what they're talking of in a lecture about methane and its issues. So from methane, they come to private property rights. And from there, they come to the rights of the collective. And I'm like, where is this going? Talk about science. Well, um, Marx wrote a letter during when the Paris Commune had was surrounded by the Prussians in the Prussian War, where they conquered France. And Paris was isolated, and people had to eat elephants and rats and so on. They were so hungry. And um, Marx wrote a letter to them saying, you're mad, you're not taking over the banking system. He advocated taking over the banking system. Society maintained itself in Paris at the time. It functioned. They might have been eating elephants, but they were still going to work and doing all the things. They knew, and they said to Marx, if we take over the banking system, Paris will fall. Actually, not only to the Prussians, but it will fall from civilization. So, I mean, there are people who do the right thing and think sensibly, even against the nonsense that Marx and Rousseau spoke and wrote about. So we hope there are enough sensible people. But we're distracted by the joys of television. You know, Emily in Paris, how wonderful that is, and everybody's <laughs> having a good time in Paris. We're just not realizing that this cancer is creeping up on us. Comfortably numb, I call it, Kelly. Comfortably yes, numb. Exactly. And distracted and amused and, you know, I mean, help us. Just please help us. We are heading for disaster. We are inhibiting ways that we can um, solve the problems that we face. There, there are, we have always solved the problems that we have confronted us in the past. At the moment, the petrol engine is improving in efficiency so fast, I think it's 5% improvement every year since, 19, uh, since 2018, that now they're really competitive. You can get a 1,000cc motor car that performs like a 2,000cc motor car. And EVs are looking no, nowhere near as attractive as they do with these super efficient little petrol engines. Um, that, that's a response to a challenge which a free society will undertake. But the government is trying to do um, control. Interestingly, the EV movement was really hammered when the Chinese re reduced the um, subsidies on EV vehicles. The price of lithium fell enormously because the Chinese gave up buying EVs. <laughs> they weren't getting free money. What they thought was free money. Money is never free. Never free. And interestingly, I think the price of lithium has gone through the well, up significantly in recent months. And of course, you've got little old New Zealand absolutely giving privilege and subsidy to uh, EV owners uh, through tax incentives, uh, so tax subsidies effectively from you and me or those of us that have utes. And they don't even pay road user charges. So all the other things that are in the mix and uh, the, the virtuous belief that EVs are the saviour because of why, uh, because of change in the temperature, uh, 
there's a whole lot of things coming to climate change. And see, part of our discussion is that we try not to talk about climate all the time, but it's so embedded in everything we are facing that the, the legislation, legislation is always back to um, climate change and the effect and using RCP 8.5 or something like that. And I wrote some notes today and I said, because uh, I want to go back to methane in a minute, efficient should, should be the dri- efficiency should be the driver, not legislation. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, that's one of the subjects of my next book, or one of my next books, is actually the, the drivers of civilization, how we, we came to be so immensely rich. Now, everyone, even the poorest people, are immensely rich. I'll tell you how poor we are here in Christchurch. I was at the new cafe where the city mission has an excellent new cafe. I shouldn't be giving any adverts, but when you're in Christchurch, you can pop around around to the city mission cafe. Good food and coffee is $3 a cup. So anyway, the the poor of the country, the poor of the city were coming to get their um, food bags and food parcels. They were all in privately owned motor vehicles. Um, ouch. That's <laughs> that's a king hit, Kelly. That's a king hit. Uh, gosh. There was Isn't a queue, a... a queue, a long, long queue of vehicles queuing up. Oh, uh, free food. Well, intriguing how that plays out. I've never um, quite got over the day that I saw a person in a local supermarket get out of a taxi in her pyjamas with her fluffy um, um, slippers on and go in and get food. And the taxi waited with its motor running while she was in there. It, wow. it, I just, if everyone's about efficiency, um, that wasn't the most efficient use of time and energy I've ever seen. Anyway, we should move back to uh, climate change for a moment uh, again. And so what I don't understand, and you may have an opinion on this, we're at 410 parts per million CO2. CO2 is the fertilizer of life. More of it's good for a greening world. How much of, and you know, it's come up, raised from about 250 over the last so many years. I'm not sure how many about it. Is it 100 years? And, and yet everyone blames the use of fossil fuels for its rising uh, rather than natural sort of uh, means. But that's not true. As I understand it, and you can correct me, Kelly, 3% of the 410 parts per million is, is, can be attributable to mankind's use of fossil fuels. That's true. So 12 parts per million out of 410. And we are, we are about to spend trillions as a world trying to break this system of the current way we enjoy life down uh, and have net zero 2050 programs. We're trying to say ruminant agriculture has got to be changed. We've got to eat crickets and uh, and bugs because uh, animal agriculture is no good. It's all it's all just a, a fairy tale, isn't it? Yes. Well, regarding animal agriculture no good, I'd like them to go up to some of the sheep farmers farming areas in the Mackenzie country up the hills there and try and grow cabbage and see how they'd get on. Yeah, it, use that land for anything other than sheep. <laughs> no, no, and, and and the reason the plains are now covered with a lot of um, black and whites or, or Jersey cows um, is because they were better at, oh, yeah. uh, at doing stuff. And, and, of course, the meat industry let itself down by not being uh, 
responsive. Uh, and of course, the dairy industry was smarter uh, than us for a period. And I stayed sheep farming till the end of my farming time. But it, the, the blame that's gone now onto dairying because it's overusing the the, the land and the water, uh, uh, the fact that the, the, the sheep and beef farmers have been sort of moved a bit further back in most areas makes no sense to me apart from the, the market forces, and that's fine. So so that's the part that does make sense. Market forces said, let's do that. And now we've got the nonsense of planting pine trees on perfectly good, even, even dairyable land is being planted in our region. Yes, I know. That's an absolute disaster. The, the so, reason for it is what you, carbon dioxide, when I started my career, people were worried that our carbon dioxide level in the um, atmosphere was getting too low and would get close to photosynthetic extinction. And there was work done showing that on hot days, hot still days, lack of CO2 was the major cause for the cessation of growth in food crops. Right? New Zealand, fortunately, is windy, and so we don't suffer from that problem. But much of Asia actually does have long periods of stillness with hot days. And so the lack of CO2 was inhibiting the growth of cereals. Then we had, after that, we had the plunge into the little into the ice age, which everybody was certain was going to come. That was in the 1980s. And uh, panics all round about what we were going to do. There was a wonderful film showed um, everybody in North America going down, living happily in Mexico. I don't know what the Mexican people would say about an influx of a huge number of United States citizens. But anyway, it was a film that's still worth showing to people because this was yet another popular and serious concern, you know, head of chicken stuff that uh, existed in my lifetime. Then you got it swung. All the climatologists started saying, oh, no, no, it's not going to be a nice age. After all, we were wrong. They didn't say we were wrong. They never said they were wrong. And they started promoting this new, new uh, climate emergency as the latest work. We're in the climate emergency. Well, you look around yourself. Where's the emergency? You know? <laughs> we we have had a river of rain come down on the, an atmospheric river of rain come down. <laughs> that happens. That's, that's weather. That happens every few years. We have that. It was sort of like the monsoon that happens every year over in Asia. But they got a thumping. And so it, it was sad. It was bad. But I can remember episodes like that, very severe droughts in North Otago and so on, bad, bad storms like the Lahini storm. The 19, what was the 1975 storm here in Christchurch was really bad and so on. We've had extreme weather events all the time. They're declining in frequency. They're not getting worse. Analysis of the, of the record show that universally. You get these um, activists saying that we're going to get more and more um, storm events and so on as the climate warms up. Well, that's not true. And they will not justify it with facts. They will not show you any of the data that exists. It's like picking 1850 as the start of the um Bad yeah. why, why 1850? The reason why 1850 was the Americans suddenly discovered meteorology, um, a subject that was developed by the British 
in Fitzgerald. And so they have records, reliable records. Other countries have records much earlier than that, and I've dug them up. I still have to get the 17th century ones from Britain because evidently they had established a meteorological office in about 1610, which lasted for about 80 years. And they took records. After all, Galileo invented the fluid responsive thermometer years before. We've had that technology for a long time. Where are the records? I managed to drag up the Swedish records because the Swedish are honest. You know, they do give you their records and they do discuss what adjustments they make and give you the original records, which is really, really a good thing to do. But everybody else fiddles away with the records and presents those. So, of course, you really don't know how valid those records are. The other thing is, of course, that when meteorology started in the 1850s, if you like, there were very few stations, France, Britain, America. And since then, more and more have added on until you can get the graph and it, it goes up exponentially almost to the present day. Well, that's a mixed data set. You've got temperate countries starting off. What was added on were tropical countries and then Arctic and Antarctic. So you can't mix up those data because it's just nonsense to do so. You have to analyze it a completely different way. And when you do try and unthread that heterogeneity, as it's called, then you get a different picture to the one that is common today. Okay, that's a big rant for you. Sorry about that. But uh, oh, that, that's all good knowledge. Uh, and, and interestingly, um, I think in the old days, so, you know, the period you've just talked about, the coverage clearly was uh, limited to certain areas. It couldn't have covered New Zealand. It couldn't have covered um, South America. Uh, couldn't have covered so much of Africa. Uh, so talking about 1850 uh, to, to now is a, is a bit crazy. I mean, they, they link it into industrialization, but we've just told listeners that uh, as our, our understanding that it's only 3% of 410 parts per million is mankind's influence on carbon dioxide. And we've also said effectively carbon dioxide really isn't a huge thermometer uh, for or cause for temperature rise on the earth so again we just go back to this it seems like it seems like a fairy tale uh, a nursery rhyme a and a, a bad dream and yet we're about to spend trillions on remedy so it's crony capitalists pushing this what is it yes the people have to believe in something right you and well, i believe in the private enterprise um, we believe in private property rights. We believe in open government. We believe in those things. But people like something more juicy, more emotionally satisfying, you know. And to blame others for the predicament you're in is a wonderful thing if you can get others to agree with you. So, of course, the communists always managed to convince the unemployed who didn't own anything that communism was a right thing. I mean, I don't know if people know this, but the communists in Russia in the last free election before the communists took over, they got 24% of the vote. That was their best result, 24%. The vast majority of Russians didn't want communism, but they got mm. it. Right? Well, 
it sort of reminds us of the 2017 election a little bit in this country where uh, the <laughs> a party that didn't get the majority vote wasn't allowed to um, was allowed to form government and uh, the majority um, vote winner wasn't the one that formed the government. But it's interesting, Kelly, I had this said to me probably in the early 2000s that the old unionists in New Zealand, uh, the old style placard waving, shovel leaning unionists uh, that and, and the meat industry activists that were around in the pre-85 period when Roger Douglas came to power and altered with, with Longy and altered all the, the labour laws and uh, farmers' privileges and things, that those old style unionists went to school. They went and got university degrees. They came out as planners and, and the like. And they also convinced uh, governments of the time that we should have a, a referendum on how we govern this country. And of course, MMP was adopted by 1996. And the rest is history. Uh, the unionists were back in control. Is that is that a fair comment? I, I mean, I've never challenged it, but it sounds sounds plausible. Yes, well, I remind people that MMP or its predecessor was the means by which Hitler got to power. Is that what you want? It's exactly what I was wanting to lead to. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> no leading questions from Don. Uh, uh, fantastic. So, look, yeah, explain. Have you got any more uh, ability to sort of flesh that out a bit more and how that happened? Well, yes. Um, generally, the uh, the government of the time, the Weimar Republic, did very naughty things. They in induced two things that, that were, were dear to the heart of the German people, or at least they affected the German people really badly. The loss of the First World War was due to a stab in the back. This was before Hitler, mm. that it was um, the economy was ruined so that they couldn't fighters effectively, and so they had to have an armistice. And the second thing was, in order to pay for all the nonsense that they were doing, they deliberately inflated the economy. And they got an, an automatic devaluation of currency that, I mean, it was amazing. Like There are photographs of people sweeping the streets up with banknotes, just getting rid of the banknotes. You had to have a barrow full of banknotes in order to buy a loaf of bread. This was all the government's doing. Right. So here they were sowing the seeds for Nazism, who had a consistent policy that aligned with Germanic beliefs in socialism, in nationalism, in racism, and in the power of the German people to be the rulers of the world. So it was an extremely attractive in many ways, the communists were the only ones who really opposed it, but they only appealed to the unemployed and they didn't have the money to maintain a decent publicity and information campaign. So they went the way of, or the other parties eventually, the Jews were blamed for, international Jewry was blamed for the stab in the back that led to the defeat of the First World War. And there was a very strange belief, which is creeping over us again, which you haven't mentioned, that Germany should be completely self-sufficient in everything, Utahi. And this belief meant that if Germany was deficient in something, say oil, 
you go and take it from your neighbours because the yin justifies the mean. So that was a justification for taking over the Rhineland, Austria, Czechoslovakia, Poland, France. And when they took over these countries, all except for Austria, of course, they raped them. They took all of the possessions, all of the trains, planes, cars, wheat, everything, and transported it back so that Germany could be self-sufficient. That's a natural result of that kind of socialism. Fascism in German hands was not what people think it was. It was socialism. It was a particularly brutal form of socialism. And because the Germans were the kings, the top notch, everybody else had to, were, were free, fair game for exploitation. That's why Poland and Russia were all invaded in order to make Germany self-sufficient in resources. We're going back to that idea, mercantilism, it used to be called, mm -hmm. that uh, we're going to be anti-free trade. We're going back to protecting our patch. Now, that's crazy, absolutely crazy. We've flourished under free trade, and we will continue to flourish under free trade if we do it. The barriers, the trade barriers are being erected all around the world. Yes, and I, yeah, I have, um, I feel guilty. I was big on free trade, still am, of course, just like you, Kelly. But um, I never understood that at the time I was involved in all this sort of stuff, uh, the globalist agenda. And I um, I am hot and, and proud to have uh, been a sovereign nation uh, rather than one that's controlled by edicts from uh, perhaps Davos or Geneva or somewhere. Oh, and so uh, free trade and sovereignty are vital for New Zealand. Yes. And anyone that trades tries to break down those institutions um, is not my friend. So yes. it's it's interesting. And linking in all of that, uh, I just wonder if you can make comment, if you know anything about the Fabian Society uh, and how that sort of had its uh, ethos presented through the late 1800s, early 1900s, and if it still exists today. We have a friend who's big on talking about the wolf in sheep's clothing. and. Uh, Maybe you've got an opinion on, on that club. Well, if we, if we go back to the origins of social welfare, the first country to introduce it was not New Zealand. We were very late on the scene. It was Germany. And the right. He had three principal actions, old age pensions, uh, in, insurance, worker insurance, and one other. <laughs> what else was that? Worker insurance old age pensions and the health insurance, right? health, mm -hmm. the three maiden pillars of social welfare. Now, he was an arch conservative. He wanted no change in the power structure in Germany. He supported um, the royalty and he supported the existing social order. But he brought those things in and it transformed Germany. It made Germany a very attractive place to live and work and increase productivity enormously. So that start was actually done by an arch-conservative. It wasn't done by the Fabian Society, right? So the Fabian Society, I think they were a bunch of middle-class goody-goody, the same people who, who powered up communism, by the way. Mm -hmm. Communism was not funded by the poor because they were poor. It had to be funded by the middle class, especially in Paris. So the emigres, 
who were rich in Paris, thundered Marx in Switzerland. And the Germans stupidly made the biggest mistake probably in history of allowing Marx to progress through hostile Germany to land up in Leningrad and start his revolution. I mean, crazy stuff, really. Um, but again, the Fabian Society is, I, I always think it's sort of like a, an afternoon tea society in some ways, of gentle people talking about gentle things. Life is brutal if you're not careful. And they, they could be used by evil intent, intended people for evil ends. And they, they were the soft uh, side of, of, of socialism. And the power brokers behind were able to use them to say, you know, we're, we're kind and nice and so on. <laughs> so that's what I think of baby and socialism. I was brought up a socialist. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I was in a strongly socialist um, home. And I was actually an activist in the Labour Party. That's right. Yeah. But I left the Labour Party when I realised that their economic policies were dreadful. This was in the Kirk era when they introduced something that really I couldn't understand at all, maximum retail price. You won't, I don't know if you know about this or re realise, but everybody had to relabel their goods with a maximum retail price on it. So competition went out the, out the window. There was no, no driver to make your goods better and cheaper. You just oh, and sat back and charged the maximum retail price. And to set the retail, maximum retail price, everybody, every industry group put the, a really cheeky high price on everything. So it was extremely destructive to the environment, to, to the economy. And Jasper, just in that period, which was around, uh, I'm guessing, 1972-ish, um, we actually did have a car manufacturing um, business in New Zealand, or two or three of them. But one that we did, we we made our own, was called a Trekker, and it was a bit like a Land Rover. It didn't last very long. It wasn't it wasn't a success. But that's the sort of stuff that happened when you can have controlled economies. You put out rubbish. Yeah. <laughs> well, television sets used to be assembled in Japan. Disassembled, put into a pack, sent to New Zealand and reassembled. <laughs> Talk about well, effic efficiency. I'm not thinking that's exactly what happened. We you know what? There was a big, big trade in Toyota car cases. Do you remember that? Yep. The cars were disassembled, put into car cases, sent out to New Zealand and reassembled. And the car cases were highly sought after because they were so useful on farms and sheep. <laughs> I, I couldn't help but rec uh, remember when you said, you know, Fabian society, you think of them as uh, gently, gently afternoon tea party sort of guys. It contrasts with, I think it was Tennyson who said nature read in tooth and claw that that the real world is quite different. But as you guys were chatting, I was trying to look up the movie that you mentioned. Is it possibly this one, uh, Kelly, The Day After Tomorrow? 2004, it depicts fictional catastrophic climate effects in a series of extreme weather events that ushered in global cooling, leading to the American president evacuating southern states to Mexico. Yeah. So, yeah, Mexico. <laughs> I just wonder whether the Mexicans really would welcome 200, was it 200 and, million people then coming And 
one can imagine the backdrop of this stephen uh, schneider who was uh, i think he passed about a decade ago 2010 major contributor to ipcc just looking through his body of work in uh, in the late 1970s he wrote this book called the genesis strategy and in this stephen schneider who wrote about the fact that the last 15000 years have been unusually warm when compared to the global temperature for the last 150,000. This warm period is passing. Temperatures on the whole will get cooler. For example, in the last 100 years, mid-latitude air temperatures peaked in the 1940s and have been cooling ever since. So the same, you know, lead writer for the IPCC followed it up eight years later with global warming. Stephen Snyder again. So you wonder how these... academics these people who have passed on but their legacy lives on how they reconcile their own complete switchovers from one end to the other i can't answer that i don't know how they get away with it with what they're talking about mm. um i mean the global norm for temperature on earth is about 5 or 6 degrees warmer than it is at the present time so we we can easily expect to warm up to normal but we live in a cold period very unusually it's only happened three times before three times before we have ice at the poles mm. normally the antarctica grows trees that's why there are coal seams down there the fossil trees and uh, animals were down there we know that mm. so we're living in a very unusual period and we we really don't know what's going to happen we could go back into another ice age we could warm up we could stay as we are but i would wish that these experts would admit that the lack of ability to predict the future is a feature of of the future we don't know what's going to happen i think we're going to warm a little bit and then i don't know what's going to happen i suspect we'll go into another ice age little ice age but we don't know what well, we don't know just going back to uh, the lister article that was written by uh, andrea graves i think her name is and was informed and fact checked by professor tim nash uh, a paleonto a paleoclimatologist at antarctic research center at vuw it says here the highest ever co2 level found in ice core bubbles is 300 parts per million during an interglacial period and it was around 180 ppm during the ice ages Now it's 414 a level not nearly seen for 4 million years but then you go down a bit further looking uh, back even further co2 was even higher up to 1000 parts per million due to natural ge- geological processes such as a massive volcanic activity uh, eruption um there are no natural causes that can explain the current warming i mean it's just you can't make this stuff up i'm i'm a layman uh, uh Cal- kelly and this is just as my father would call it tripe yes it is tripe you saw that i i wrote a rebuttal of support but uh, and i i gave some re- reconstructions not using ice bubbles because there may be something going on with the physics in ice bubbles that regulates the carbon dioxide content and we don't know but we do know from other proxies including much more reliable ones and indeed from greenland ice cores that the co2 has been very much higher in the past our plants evolved at a time when co2 levels were high much higher and they're now co2 starved 
That's why they respond so well to added CO2. Talk to any glasshouse owner who pumps CO2 in and he gets much better growth. Our plants are deprived worldwide at the moment of CO2, the essential nutrient. So far from more CO2 being bad from the plant's point of view, it's luxury. It's great. <laughs> it, it is. And, and apparently, if you look at uh, satellite images of the world, it is greening in the fringes where there was desert, desertification before. Sorry, that word didn't come out right. Interestingly, we need to get onto methane just before we um, get to an end. And we haven't even talked about your commercialization of your, your, your products that I do want to get to. William Happer and William Van Weingarten have said, that their research shows in physics that methane cannot have anything but the most minor effect as a greenhouse gas. It, it, the people that are saying effectively that it does have uh, an effect are saying that they their testing has been done in isolation rather than in the real atmospheric conditions of the world. What say you about uh, the Happer and Van Wingarden um, it's the same argument used against CO2. Increase of CO2 as an infrared absorber is subject to the Lambert-Beer law. In other words, as the CO2 level goes up, the ability to absorb more energy decreases. So you get a curve. I mean, this is not live, but you know what the curve looks like. It? Yes, yes. Curves are common in nature, not straight lines are not. And one of the major failures that the climatologists do is fitting straight lines to everything. You can't do that. That is wrong. If you fit the proper function, the curves, you find that um, the gases like methane and CO2 become saturated. They can't absorb any more energy. It follows the Lambert beer law. So they're right. In real life, you can see this happening in the climate. That, uh, And in any case, there's too little CO2 to have much effect. It's only a tiny amount in the atmosphere. Methane is even worse. <laughs> you know, what? it's water, man, it's water. <laughs> that, that is very important. But if you have been out in the desert where the air is free from much water, it's as hot as anything because the sun's radiation comes down in the daytime. And at night, it's freezing cold. When I first went out in the desert, the first expedition I did, they gave us these heavy woolen sleeping bags. And I wondered, I thought, you know, a blanket would do, wouldn't it? Boy, I was grateful for that sleeping bag because it got freezing at night. Absolutely. And so... Um... It's interesting how we've been browbeaten as a sector. So I'm in the farming sector, browbeaten. I sensed there was something wrong when uh, I led the FART rallies in 2003 and it culminated with the tractor going up the steps of parliament. I sensed there was something wrong, uh, but I wasn't sure. Wasn't sure that the world wasn't frying because man's hockey stick was um, sort of quite telling. So I lived in that sort of fear that uh, I'm perhaps defending something I can't defend for much longer until I realized that man had corrupted the data. And then in 2018, I found that uh, Van Wingarden and um, and William Happer came out with these papers, and others had done it before, actually, if you'd researched it, to show that the effect of anything... Well, so we've been living a litany of lies, an orchestrated litany of lies in New Zealand uh, for 
20 years. And yet we've still got a Minister for Climate Change hell-bent on trying to make farmers do something about their animal emissions. And I know it stands outside the uh, Paris, uh, uh, sorry, the net zero 2050 target, sorry. Yep. But but it's it's still a calm job. And we've got farmer leaders falling for it that we need to do something. Now, I don't say I've got the mortgage on intelligence, Kelly, but I love hearing um, say, oh, I clearly don't have, I love hearing people like you saying that it is rubbish. So how can we get how can we get off this consensus um, uh, paradigm that everyone thinks is right when it clearly is fallacious and it's clearly destabilizing the good efforts of farmers and it's it's destabilizing uh, our economy potentially? Oh, really? When, when are we going to get off this climate drug and get back to real stuff? Well, in the past, there were peasant riots and things, chopping heads off kings. I don't advocate that now, but something like that probably has to happen. But there has to be a popular uprising um, of some kind or another. At the moment, National and Labour are both singing from the same song sheet. So, um, you know, that's that's so sad. I became aware of this very early on when I thought, I'm not very good at activism. I tend to retreat away from things I don't like, like the Labour Party. Uh, I shouldn't say that, should I? But in, in 74, I thought that Kirk wasn't up to the job. He, and, um, and the economic policy they had was stupid. The defence policy they had was foolishness in the extreme. But um, anyway... So I started working after I did it. I used to have a lot of consultancies overseas and I did a consultancy in Japan and I noticed that they were using cow feces to dissolve into water, which they use for aeroponics. They had about 18 of these ginormous establishments in different parts of Japan using aeroponics. Now, for your listener, that is using water-containing nutrients that sprays onto plants that aren't in water and they're not on in soil. And the plants are wired up so that they can call for the spray whenever they need it. And they grew the most delicious, um, non-organic, may I add, <laughs> strawberries, lettuces, onions, spring onions, all, all of that stuff. Even in the middle of winter, they were busy doing this. But this outfit were uh, organic registered. So they were using cow poo as their source of nutrient. And the cow poo didn't smell. And I thought that was odd. They deliberately, and I asked how they did it, and they gave, gave, told me about this plant extract that they used. So they also had a patent application for its use as a deodorant for humans and dogs. I take the smell away from dogs and humans. So I, I, I came back Christ to, to New Zealand, and I started, I uh, got some of this stuff, and I started playing around with it, because I, I had worked out that if it was, you know, the smell is produced by microorganisms, so that substance must be inhibiting the microorganisms. Right? If it was inhibiting microorganisms in the feces, I wrote to them and said, uh, what, oh, no, I actually tasted some, some of their milk, it was sweet, good milk. And they had higher growth rates in their cattle 
when they were using this stuff. So I did a lot of experiments and we um, actually isolated the active. We know what it is. It's manufactured. It's approved in most countries except New Zealand for use in farming. So we're going to have a battle for whoever to get it established in New Zealand. We're thinking of actually going to America where it is uh, okay to be it's it's recognized as safe, generally recognized as GRS as it's called. Uh, and we did uh, field experiments, but using my training was in human physiology, so I used hum uh, human physiology techniques on the animals. I didn't use those hollow things that they used or metabolic chambers. I used a Douglas bag, which basically was a mask over the animal's face that blew up a, a gas impermeable balloon, and I took it away and analyzed it. We got up to 90% reduction of methane with a uh, small dose uh, of drenched in sheep, and um, it lasted four days. So this looked practical. We the, the dosage for a cow would be around about 15 milligrams. Uh, the LD50 is way, way, way above that. It's very safe stuff. In fact, it's a natural product. You have it inside you. You just don't have enough. The cows have it inside them. They don't have it in the right place. It has to go into the rumen where it stops the methanogens producing methane. And it's more energy for the cow. You get more milk, better milk, and greater growth. And so that's the that that's the key, isn't it? Uh, if there's something that can make the animal more efficient, yep. um, not less efficient, then uh, farmers will gravitate to it. It certainly doesn't need to be legislated. Uh, no, and, but my point is, we've always solved our problems in the past. Yes, yes. And so... And this uh, is a problem. Mm. And, and, and I hope that people will remember that in actual fact, it's making the car more efficient. It's not solving the methane problem because there is no methane problem. Exactly. exactly. 100%. And so your commercialized um, uh, list here is, is significant, and we haven't got time to go through them all. But one that did intrigue me, and it's when I first met you, uh, Kelly, was you were big on uh, uh, Jerusalem artichokes and, 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 try, and trying to get inulin out of those uh, artichokes and creating the flour. And uh, it was good for diabetics, was it, from memory? Yeah, yeah. Given up that. Given up. Uh, too hard. Too hard. The... What we have found is that in deer and sheep, it reduces um, methane production. Uh, the volume of feces diminishes, the growth rate improves. The, the improvement, the, the uh, sheep that we treated got far higher prices at auction. They just looked magnificent. They were bigger, they were glossier, they were, you know, and uh, I think the, the control sheep got $90 on the hoof and the treated sheep got $140. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, that's what good stuff. And good so stuff. It's, it's a, it, thinking of perhaps having a, a, a feed that has Jerusalem artichoke chaff or whatever, because if it's, if it's chaffed and aged, the animals love it. We know that by cattle, horses, cats, dogs, and all will eat stuff quite readily. And we put our secret ingredient in, so we get a double hit at methane and growth. 
right combined and it should be cheap and easy the price per treatment is very low because we use very little of the active ingredient you don't need much but it has to be into the rumen you have it in you now this stuff right <laughs> oh well it's all good to know that i'm made of some good stuff um <laughs> there's lots of other not things enough, this, not enough this, <laughs> this massive list you've got you've called you've got another product called flora flower and flora plus and oh, yeah. um they they were over in australia i couldn't get it done here what it was was wood waste that we treated um by steam explosion to um make into uh a very strong material, a, plas a plasticized wood, but it was actually all, all entirely wood waste. Okay. Uh, it's being done in, in America at the moment too, but that I have no commercial interest in that anymore. And another one I recall. Really with... The one that had the greatest potential was the potentiation technology, which led to potential potentiated pollen, which your some of your more elderly, more like me, um, listeners will probably remember it was very popular i think we were the first to a million dollars in that uh profit in, in with that product my, my it goodness took off like a lightning uh, we eventually paid back i think it was a hundred uh was it fourteen hundred percent the investors it's just an amazing wow. success story ruined by a couple of Aucklanders but we won't say nasty about Aucklanders at this stage <laughs> Well, they're our listeners, so please be nice. Come on, be nice. Uh, interestingly, going back even further uh, in your list, you talked about these ESG monitors and things. Oh, yeah. That's when I was young. Yeah. And I, as, a, as a hobby, I did electronics. And uh, I was teaching physiology at the time, and we needed to be able to measure the ECG and the other vital components of activity. Uh, such as um, the ventilation, the breaths under exercise. The, the mantra at the time was you could not take active ECGs. You had to lie down on a thing, get wired up, head and ankle, and so on. And then wrists and ankles, and you had to lie still because the muscle noise uh, swamped the signal from the heart. Any activity would ruin the, the signal. But I found you, it was easy solution to that. And uh, I designed this machine that gave us active ECG and to it I added on a machine to analyze the number of breaths and uh, depth of breath and composition. So we had this going. I, I, did, I, I wasn't commercially focused at all at that stage. And I offered it all to the hospitals and only in the car the hospital took it up. Uh, see, it just shows you the world leaders. Yep. yep. And um, the we were approached by one of the medical salesmen because we, we bought medical gear. And he saw us doing this with, I think it was the uh, eight team that we helped train using my equipment so that they could manage to measure the uh, their performance under extreme exercise, which is right. what rowing is. You yeah. couldn't do that with ordinary gear. And he looked at it and said, oh, that's interesting. What do you got there? And I said, oh, it's a bit of a green box that I made up. He says, do you sell it? And I said, oh, I suppose we could. 
because they were selling deep ray equipment. But when they ran the deep ray equipment on the patients, the nurses and the doctor had to go away into a safe zone, a lead line zone, and so they wouldn't get uh, damaged. And they couldn't see how the patient was going, whether the patient was still alive or had been fried. So they wanted this green box. And I said to the boss, could we make it? Could the technicians make it? And he said, oh, I suppose it's for a good cause. And we sold it to them. And a year later, I was in the hospital and looked at the stuff and they said, oh, yeah, yeah, we use that green box there to see how the patients are going. I said, how much do you pay for it? And they told me it was 10 times what we sold it for. <laughs> that shows you. Commerce quickly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, we're gullible. Some of us are so generous with our time and energy and oh, intelligence. And I we probably need to wrap this up pretty soon, but one thing I did note uh, that I remember being a huge push on in television advertising and marketing uh, that you obviously had the genesis of was a product called Enzogenol. Yes, yes, I. that's got a good story because a group of private investors had gone to try and make an equivalent to Pycnogenol in New Zealand, and they gave it to the Chemical and Process Engineering Department of Canterbury University, um, and they were stuck because there was a patent stopping them doing the standard way of extracting the um, active materials. And Ian Gilmore, a friend of mine, knew that he and I had collaborated and knew that I was a bit of an oddball that could think out of, outside the square. So I got rung up and invited over to a conference they were having with the investors. And they told me what their problem was. And I had a look and said, oh, you don't do that, you do this. So I gave them a water base. They were using solvent-based systems, but I knew that those compounds they were looking for were also water-based. So there was a water regime that you could use to extract it. It very much cheaper and much safer than the um, way that it had been done. So we got a patent, and it, it's still in production. It's uh, using that. The people who made pycnogenol evidently have also changed to the water-based system, gone away from solvent. So there you go. And that was a quarter of an hour's work for me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you make you make that all sound too easily easy. And in fact, um, at the outset of this interview, I talked about you being the Olympian of academia. And not only are you uh, uh, in the sciences, you're into the the commercialization of them. Uh, you're an author. You've done a lot of stuff, Kelly. And One of the things I didn't mention was when I was dean, I had the horrible job at, at uh, enrollment time of sacking all of the students who weren't performing. Now, I reasoned that they'd got their school cert, got their UE, they should have enough brains to get a degree, even if it's only a C-grade degree, they should have to get a degree. So I interviewed them. I interviewed a lot of them. And um, we try to dr drill down to the reasons why they weren't performing at the university. And it came out to be four factors were common. And none of them was, in, was intelligent or the ability to remember or any of that. The essential things you have to do for, to, to get a degree. Um, and so I did a deal with them that I wouldn't kick them out if they would attend a course that I would organize and pay for. So I rang up the psychology department and asked for the best um, industrial psychologist post-grad that they had, uh, I asked the, the professional staff, the, the academics, and they gave me a name. Being a cautious bloke, I rang up the secretaries who know everything about an organisation, and they gave me the same name. So I contacted this young lady. She had to be young and forceful, 
you know, and knowledgeable about industrial psychology. And she was all these things. And she did a brilliant job. It was paid for by the students. And the university gained about nearly a million dollars in fees out of that. By the wow. And amazingly, most of them passed subsequently. Some of them got up to A grades. Okay. So I wrote a couple of papers on that in the uh, tertiary education literature. But I got praise from all over the, the globe. They were looking for programs like this. I didn't do anything except have the ideas. Um, I just planned I, I didn't do it. Uh, people far more capable than me did it. That lady was very capable. And um, so it was It, it was institute, in, instituted in many universities around the world. The thing was, when I stepped down from being dean, because it was not an official program, the next dean wouldn't um, support it. it, so it deprecated. Well... You know, it's, you were the catalyst. You were the catalyst for that, and you cared enough to do it. Ideas are the king. You know, they are. They are. Context. That's, context that's of ideas. Mm. We were talking about humanity has always evolved through ideas. Yeah. You are. You were talking, Kelly. You have another book coming. Yes, is, that with, is that with Tross publishing again? Well, probably because he's the only one who published books as radical. So mind. you answered what I was about to ask. How hard is it for a person of, you know, your bent of mind to get a book published in New Zealand these days? Oh, it's impossible. God. Do, do radical books. It's impossible. Despite the, I mean, the formidable CV you have, I saw seven pages of it and I didn't know where to start from. Despite that. what? Yes. So how do they fob you off? What do they say? What's wrong with your, uh, with publishing you? Uh, I, I think I go against the time. So, but they must have to, you know, you must be putting them in a place where they have to type out an email to you. What do they say in that? How well, do they decline it? Um, well, well, a rejection just as a rejection. They're always very polite. Yeah. I just had one yesterday. But they're always very polite. They never give you a reason? Why is that? Oh, yes, it's just not their sphere of interest or something. <laughs> I'm aware that the you know, uh, engineers' societies or whatever body they have does that to some of their members too. So yeah. very, very awkward to get uh, papers published. And, um, yeah, good on, good on you for being tenacious and good on Tross Publishing for publishing your, your book, um, The Counterblast. You want me to do many more because oh. that climate book is selling well. Absolutely. Well, here's, here's a shout, shout out for Tross Publishing to our listeners. And incidentally, for anyone who might be thinking that this green agendas is just for farming, uh, I have news for you. It is, it's not, none of us is going to escape it, whether you are a dairy farmer like me or out in town. I saw an article yesterday by Mark Dalder, uh, gentlemen, and I don't know how they throw these amounts around, but his article was on the newsroom about plans to cap climate pollution from new buildings. And it says that under the OIA documents, official briefing they've released in newsroom says that they are now going to introduce requirements to measure, report, and cap climate pollution from buildings that might drive up cost. But somehow the article ends with saying that if we do all of this, we are going to add $147 billion to the economy, to our GDP. We are a country with a GDP of $350 billion. If we do this, we're going to increase it by half. And magic. Magic. I just, and I, I looked down at the comments. Just three people have commented on that article on Newsroom's website. 
One of them is uh, Kyron Keogh, an environmental consultant, Otago Limited. There is a Lindsay Wood from Z- Resilient NZ. Thanks, Mark Dalda, for traversing. You know the ones who respond. You know which way, you know, yeah. the dollar falls. Yeah. Well, just getting back to my next work, is yep. it's actually on human evolution and the rise of civilizations. It also mentions the decline of civilizations. And, well, I, uh, I would have thought, Kelly, anyone would open that. That's not just a, you know, climate book. This should be welcomed by anyone. Yeah, well, climate comes into it at times. <laughs> uh, because climate change has been attributed to the the fall of the Bronze Age and um, the Roman Empire and so on, and was involved. Um, and, of course, the French Revolution was impelled by climate change, the cold of the Middle Ice Age. But I'm, I have, I think I'm promoting a new way in which uh, we evolved. The, the standard methods of, the standard mechanisms for evolution are natural selection and sexual selection, right? And I'm proposing a third one, transactional selection, where you, in free commerce, you, um, both sides benefit from the commerce. The, the buyer should have choice. And the seller should have competition. And if those are free and available, then you will get an amazingly rapid increase in welfare and um, wealth. And that's what's happened since the in the Enlightenment. But it's also had effect over time, over the last 150, 300,000 years, on our brain, our body, and so on that this transactional selection has enabled humans to transcend the animal condition and become highly civilized, highly intelligent, able to indulge in teleology planning and aiming for goals. All of these things came about because we were not getting our resources by contest taking. We were getting them by trading. And that encouraged specialization and labor um, and all the good things that, that trading can bring. And it explains a lot of uh, features of humans which have puzzled people for a long time, such as our very mixed genetic makeup. And that's because when people were trading, often boy would beat girl from the other side and they would have babies <laughs> and we would be a mixed genome. And all of these things. Uh, I think that there's one group who traded very extensively a long, long time ago in Central Asia, and their genes have permeated the whole earth. Um, Between 5 and 40% of your genes come from this group. How do you explain that with with natural selection? You can't. And and dare tell... Dare tell anyone that we're hybrids of something else. Uh, it doesn't go down well. You say that in New Zealand, well, we're all hybrids of something. Uh, you know, and especially in Maori, they don't like that argument. They just don't like it. But we are. We are. We we've got. We've even got Neanderthal genes, and we've got genes from E. coli <laughs> from the bacteria. We have a lot of bacterial genes. You can't deny that those are facts. Uh, and, and interestingly, listeners, I'm looking. Uh, we we do this live, and um, Kelly's on the on a video link. 
and he's smiling all the way through this. He just loves his subjects, and um, yeah, we we love hearing them. And hopefully, we can do it again, Kelly. Yep, sure. Get, um, maybe get we might be able to stick to the script. I, I might be able to stick to the script. You know what I'm like. <laughs> Well, and me, and me too. We certainly went all over the shop uh, and sort of came around in circles, got back to base, and then went off on another tangent. But hopefully, our listeners have found it uh, invigorating. Uh, there is, there is different ideas in society. It isn't all just what comes out of the parliament that is, is uh, what should, holy uh, grail. Yeah, is the holy grail. They're, they're right, Jasper. <laughs> so, Kelly, um, we thank you for. For your hour and a half, uh, it's gone very quickly. Uh, we hope your book uh, writing continues. I, I, yeah, I would love a one-page pricey, uh, but that's okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, a one-page pricey at the beginning. Okay, <laughs> and uh, we hope that the sales of your book, uh, the counterblast to, ma- to man-made global warming hypothesis, uh, continue to go, to go well. And mm-hmm. so, Jaspreet, I think uh, that's about us for mm-hmm. this section. Absolutely. Thank you so much for your time, Kelly. And uh, for our listeners, we've recorded this earlier. So this is on the duck shooting weekend. You have any plans, Kelly? No, no, I'm not a hunter. I've sort of gone off hunting. I don't know why. Um, I used to be keen, but I've got older and it's it's colder out there, you know. And I've sort of given up alcohol too. And one of the the beauties of duck hunting was the whiskey that you could drink in the Mai Mai away from the family with friends. Uh, Oh, heck. That's a whole <laughs> other story. That's a whole other story. Uh, <laughs> Thanks, right. Thank you so much for your time, Thank gentlemen. You. And we'll definitely have you back again, Kelly, I'll if you have the time. Much. I look forward to it. Thank you. Thank you so much. Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio.